This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone, are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. If you've ever planted anything, you did so because you hoped that what you planted would grow. When farmers plant seeds, they do so because they expect those seeds to die and to produce a new plant, and from that plant, new fruit. This process provided one of the images that the Apostle Paul uses to describe our new life in Christ. He wrote, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the thing that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Joining us to help us think through this passage from Galatians 5 is Dr. Julius Kim, Dean of Students and Associate Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Hi, Julius, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's good to be with you. In the last 30 years, there's been a lot of emphasis in the evangelical and sometimes even in the Reformed world on the gifts of the Spirit, but relatively little emphasis, I think, on the fruit of the Spirit. And yet we just read this marvelous passage from Galatians 5. Why do you think that is? That's a great question, Scott. I wonder if it's a problem with humanity that began from the fall to the time of the Apostle Paul as well as till now. I suppose for most people, it's frankly more exciting to talk about extraordinary things in life, like the signs and wonders we read in the Scriptures, rather than the ordinary things that the Scriptures call us to, like living Christ-like holy lives. To put it kind of in modern terms, I wonder if it's because more people like reading National Enquirer versus the Wall Street Journal, or on TV, they'd rather watch TV. TMZ versus 60 Minutes. And so I suppose it's not unlike Jesus' own rebuke to those in his day that were always looking for signs and extraordinary things. Because I think at the end of the day, it seems like the central problem of fallen mankind is perhaps a desire for assurance and certainty in ourselves and what we do and what we can produce, rather than looking outside for assurance, namely the work of Christ and what he's accomplished for us. And so the bottom line is I think we talk more about the gifts of the Spirit, and I can talk a little bit more about that problem, rather than the fruit of the Spirit because of our, frankly, our self-centeredness, which seems to be a perennial problem since the fall to the reason why Paul has to address it and why in the last 30 years we still continue to struggle with it. 
So the gifts of the Spirit are exciting, and they are. I mean, if someone actually did begin to manifest the kinds of things in one of our congregations that actually happened in the apostolic church, and that the apostles actually did, that really would be something to talk about, right? Because the apostles had enormous spiritual power, right down to putting people to death and raising them from the dead, which of course are not the things that are typically advertised when the gifts are said to be operating in somebody's congregation. Yeah, if the gifts of the Spirit that we saw in the New Testament were to manifest themselves now, which unfortunately some churches do believe that those particular gifts continue, I think we run into the same kind of problems we've seen throughout Christianity, namely on the one hand, an overemphasis on the gifts seems to sometimes produce in people a kind of antinomian tendency where they don't want to live holy lives because they can obviously say, well, I don't have that particular gift. And since I don't have that particular gift, I don't have to exercise that particular gift. That's a really important point. The outpouring of the Spirit with which the Corinthians were blessed didn't necessarily, if we're to judge by what we see in First and Second Corinthians, lead to an immediate sort of godliness, that there was real ungodliness, real impiety in the Corinthian congregation. And Paul described some of that in fairly direct terminology. So that's a very important point, that having the gifts of the Spirit, for which so many people are seeking today, isn't necessarily the same thing as sanctification. And I think that's partially because their understanding of the gift is so flawed. Their understanding of the gifts of the Spirit as articulated in Scripture, not just in the New Testament, but ultimately from the Old, is part of a broader understanding of God desiring righteousness in His people, but is it found ultimately in the special, extraordinary, quote-unquote, gifts that certain people receive, or is it ultimately because of their union with Christ? And until people realize that gifts of the Spirit are tied to the work of Christ, then I don't think they understand that. So on the one hand, like you said, it leads to an antinomian spirit, like we saw in Corinth and probably in Galatia. But I wonder if another problem is not just antinomianism, but people start not just thinking about the gifts of the Spirit, but those who emphasize the fruits plural, as opposed to fruit, and again, we'll probably talk about this more in a little bit, but then all of a sudden the fruits become some sort of checklist that they need to check off to make sure that if this is what it means to be holy, then I'm going to check this off, I'm going to check this off, and it's ultimately not sanctification, which is a work of God's grace in them, but to them, sanctification becomes redefined to a work of my efforts and my work where I check off this checklist of fruits of the Spirit, and then surely God will have to accept me. So on the one hand, it could lead to antinomianism. On the other hand, it leads to a a legalism, which is not the gospel. And so here we're talking about fruit, and fruit is something that God gives. The farmer, when he puts seeds in the ground, uh, he may water, he may tend, he certainly prays if he's a wise, believing farmer. It's sort of a, it's a foolish farmer who puts seeds in the ground and then sort of walks away and ignores them and, and doesn't pray. But the farmer knows that fruit comes from God. And isn't that also true here in Galatians 5? And isn't that true in the Christian life? That the fruit that we see that Paul describes here in this a list of fruit, and we might even describe them as virtues, these things come from God the Spirit working them in us. And that particular idea is nothing new for the Apostle Paul or many of those who are reading the Scriptures at that time because this agricultural image of seed being planted, the farmer watering faithfully, 
and then believing in the harvest that God will provide was an image that the Old Testament Israelites knew as well. I mean, the idea of fruit being analogous to the idea of righteousness comes all the way from Genesis. You know, the whole garden has this fruit imagery. Even after the fall, you see the imagery of God wanting and desiring righteousness, or sometimes he would call righteousness, he would want the fruit of righteousness being seen throughout Israel and for all of his people. But as we know the story uh, of the Old Testament, Israel was not fruitful or not righteous. And so they needed to be a solution to that problem. And as we know from redemptive history or the story of the entire Bible, since they, they lacked the right fruit, the fruitful one, the perfect one, the righteous one had to come since none of us are truly fruitful in terms of righteousness. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What is the context in Galatians 5 when Paul begins to address them about this matter of the fruit of the Spirit? It seems to me that the context, as I mentioned before, really stems from the Old Testament, where God desires for his people to express fruitfulness and righteousness that exemplify himself and his kingdom, the kingdom that he desires to bring to this world. As we know, the whole biblical storyline is a story of God wanting a people for himself, that he will be their God, they will be his people through this covenantal relationship. Unfortunately, his people are not fruitful. They're not righteous. And so God promises that there will be a day when all of us will have that kind of righteousness, that kind of fruitfulness that he desires, that kind of fruitfulness and righteousness that are part of his eternal kingdom. And so what I think happens is that image of fruitfulness and righteousness spreading through all the earth. We, we read passages like in Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 11, where God wanting fruitfulness and righteousness going through all the nations is really a picture, I think, of God's heavenly kingdom being seen on this earth. But of course, Israel does not bear the kind of fruit that God desires. And so there's a promise of a fruitful one, a one who is righteous. And I think it's Isaiah 11 where it talks about, it introduces the branch. Again, another agricultural image. A branch will come, a perfect branch will come, who will bear the fruit necessary for us to have this kind of righteousness. And then fast forward, of course, we know the story. Jesus is that righteous branch who's able to bear the perfect fruit. And so then we as his people, when we trust in Christ, when we rely on him alone and his perfect righteousness, his perfect fruitfulness, then the Holy Spirit is given to us. And this Holy Spirit image being poured out is a promise from the Old Testament. And these promises of the Old Testament are now being fulfilled in Christ through us. And so when we display the fruit of the Spirit, it's nothing more, nothing less than Christ-likeness bearing fruit in our lives. And so the more we look to Christ, the more we trust in his work, the more we, in fact, worship him, the more we become like him. And that's bearing fruit. So all of these images and all of these ideas really are not something Paul came up with on the fly. It was part of his studies in the Old Testament, his studies in the Hebrew Bible, and his understanding of these redemptive historical promises coming to fulfillment in Jesus. And some people had come into the Galatian congregation and had said, well, yes, you should believe in Jesus. That's important. So they weren't necessarily overtly denying trusting in Jesus, but they were saying, and you need to do these other things to be truly and fully accepted by God. And so Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. 
So what was the consequence morally and spiritually, ethically, for these Galatians when they turned to this gospel of Christ and? Ultimately, it's no longer the gospel. It's gospel because it's Jesus plus their own works. It's Jesus plus their own merit. It's Jesus plus their own effort. And again, I want to be very careful here. Paul is not saying that we have no part in our sanctification, but justification and sanctification are two very different doctrines. And I think these false teachers in Galatia, like many false teachers today, even in our own hearts, sometimes confuse us to think that somehow we're justified because of believing in Jesus, one, but also in perhaps displaying the fruit of the Spirit. So it's believing in Jesus plus the fruit of the Spirit. And that gets justification all wrong. It's all mixed up. Sometimes people pitch that as a way to get people to be good, to be sanctified. And so the question is, did that work in the case of the Galatians? Clearly not. Paul actually says, who has bewitched you? You're getting the equation all wrong. You're getting the, the process all wrong. You're justified when you believe in Jesus' work alone through faith alone. Uh, and then you're sanctified, now becoming united to him. Now Jesus, through his spirit, works in you his grace. And you become more and more renewed by his image. You become more like him in other ways. So the fruit of the spirit is a natural byproduct of the Holy Spirit's seed in us. It bears fruit naturally. And the fruit of legalism, in this case, was Peter refusing to sit down at table with Gentiles. And so the fruit of corrupting the gospel wasn't greater sanctification, but it was division in the congregation. Absolutely. And then he goes on to to basically prosecute them. In in chapter 4, in some respects, as we say back home, he got after them (laughs) for the way that they were treating one another. And then specifically in chapter 5, he begins to describe the kinds of things that are the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, which we read at the outset of the program. And you see, for example, in 518, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And what does the law, in the sense in which he's using it here, produce? Well, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, etc., This is the irony of legalism, right? It offers, it seems to offer, the possibility of greater obedience and greater godliness. But the result of it, the fruit of legalism, is all of these things. Is is that fair, you think, or? Absolutely, because legalism is ultimately a self-centered religion. And that's the fundamental problem that the gospel is trying to address. Luther called it this, I think he said, we're naturally turned in upon ourselves. And when we're turned in upon ourselves, we look to our acts, our deeds, our words, perhaps, that perhaps are good. These are good ways of speaking and living. But fundamentally, we're trusting in ourselves and not in the finished work of Christ. And what will end up happening is because we're sinful, because we're not perfect, our deeds of the flesh, oftentimes motivated for our own purposes, we're only going to produce fleshly things. Because we start with the flesh, you're going to end with the flesh. That's really important. But Paul is arguing something very difficult. You start with the Spirit, you have the fruit of the Spirit. Because they were being tempted, having begun by the Spirit, to conclude with the flesh. And so, there, you know, there are movements out there that say that you get in by grace, so that would be equivalent to starting with the Spirit, and you stay in through, and sometimes they say faith and works, or sometimes they just say works. In either case, if it's not of grace, then it's of works, Paul says. So if you add anything to grace, 
whatever you've added to it isn't grace, is that the equivalent of starting with the spirit and ending with the flesh? I think so. And I think that that what you describe is in many ways what Paul is writing against here in Galatians, is that type of idea, maybe with the right motivation, they want to, to be more holy, but they're getting the process and the equation all wrong. It's Jesus plus something again. That's not the gospel. That's not what Paul is describing here in Galatians. Preaching is so important because it's foolish, according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God. God's people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor's doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You're a pastor and you teach pastors, and you know that one of the temptations that preachers face when, you know, there are seasons of difficulty in, in the life of a congregation, you know, things are going along well, and then, you know, suddenly you've got a, a divorce case that you're working on, and then then you've got this other case. Maybe you have an apostasy, and, and, and maybe uh, the, somebody gets uh, arrested for embezzling, and it all seems to, to uh, pile up all at one time. And uh, the temptation is to get into the pulpit after a season of that and really let the people have it because clearly they're not behaving themselves. They're not living like Christians, and uh, we just need to tighten the screws. So as a pastor yourself, as a preacher, and as one who teaches preachers, what do you say to that pastor who's really frustrated and tempted to just get up there and let them have it? First, I would say I understand the temptation because we face it personally and individually ourselves, whether we're arguing with our wife or having difficulty with our rebellious children. Of course, the initial instinct, that kind of initial impulse for us as humans is, especially for males, here are seven steps and I'm gonna fix this problem. And that fundamentally is the human fleshly way to, do, to solve problems and not the spiritual divine gospel way. And, that's, and, and so what's interesting here is that Paul uses this agricultural imagery. Sure, you might be able to put nice fake leaves maybe even put some wonderful Christmas lights on a tree and hope that somehow through that people might see us bearing some sort of nice flowers and then flowers turning into fruit. But that's all fake. That's just trying to fix something from the outside. And what happens is, Paul is arguing here is unless you change it from the inside, you're never going to be that beautiful fruit, that beautiful tree that flowers and bears fruit. And as a pastor, as a preacher, as, as someone who's training future pastors and preachers, you have to keep saying, believe in the harvest, believe in what God designed us to be through the gospel. That if you continue to preach the full gospel, and we can talk about that too, because I don't want people to think that this is antinomian, just like believe in grace and everything will work out. Sanctification is more than that, but you know, believe in the gospel. And what Paul is teaching here is that the fruit of the Spirit is a byproduct, a natural byproduct of Christ in us working itself out. Now, that doesn't mean overnight is a marriage going to change or are your children not going to be rebellious, but no, through time, through patience, through the ministry of the Word and preaching, the sacraments, church, 
prayer, all the means God has given to us to grow in more Christ-likeness, we have to do that. But clearly, it seems like those are the last things we want to do is go to church and listen to the word. The last thing we want to do is pray. The last thing we want to do is receive the sacraments and the means of grace that God has given. Those are the primary ways God said, this is how you grow. This is how you bear fruit. But no, no, that's, that's, that's too easy. I, I, I want to give me, give me a checklist of what, how to be loving, joyful, patient. And I think they're it's fundamentally getting it backwards. Here we are, as you and I are recording this, in Escondido, where there is a lot of citrus. And as we walk around in the evening, there's a wonderful, at this time of year, a wonderful sweet aroma in the air from the citrus that you can't fake. If I walk by and somebody's running their their dryer, you can smell those dryer sheets. You know what that is. That's artificial, not particularly pleasant, especially you know, when it's so strong. But then uh, you walk past an orange grove, which we have around here, and you know what that is right away. It's spectacular. That's not anything that anybody fabricated. That's the real thing because that comes from life. Maybe if there's a season of challenges, trials, difficulties in a congregation, one of the things we need to ask is, are our professing members, are they actually believing? That would be a place to start. And then you can begin to talk about fruit. But dead trees don't produce fruit. Yeah, no matter how much you try to do from the outside, the tree is dead. It's not going to bear much fruit. It's kind of like, I remember when I was traveling through Europe uh, at one point and living there for a short period of time, I noticed distinct, how shall I say, scents coming from people who decided not to bathe as regularly. They have different habits. Than that's right. Do. That's yeah. fine. And as a result, they thought that somehow by wearing a lot of cologne or wearing a lot of perfume will somehow mask the natural scents and fragrances that are coming out of their body. Musk. Musk, yes. But as you and I both know and perhaps have, have smelled, you can't hide that. You, you are what you eat. You are what you smell like. No matter how much perfume you put on, you're going to smell like this weird mixture. And like that citrus analogy, I wonder if a lot of Christians who don't believe this particular gospel that Paul is articulating here in Galatians, they look at the fruits of the Spirit as these kind of perfume-like things that they try to put on themselves, but their hearts have not been changed by Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the Spirit working through them. They're not going to smell right. So until the Holy Spirit gives you new life, you're not going to give evidence of new life. Okay, so Paul gives this wonderful list of fruits or the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the fruit of the flesh. And you said a moment ago you wanted the listener to be sure to understand that you're not and that we're not counseling antinomianism. We're not simply saying, you know, let go and let God, or just know that you are justified and everything else will sort of take care of itself. So what are you saying? Yeah, to use another agricultural imagery, in in the Gospel of John, the Apostle John describes ways in which we we grow as Christians. And the primary things that he says is, abide in Christ, remain in Christ, and then you will bear fruit. If you attach yourself to the vine, the true vine, then you yourself will bear fruit. And that's an interesting image, again, using this fruit of the image. Unless we're grafted into Jesus, unless we have this, to use systematic theology words, unless we're united to Christ by faith, we're not going to be engrafted to that vine and bear fruit. So the first and foremost thing we have to say about the fruit of the Spirit, it's not like let go and let God, but we have to abide in Christ, to believe in Christ, not just when you become a Christian, but during your days as a Christian. Every day I'm believing in what Jesus has done, because I don't know about you, 
God, but I forget all the time. And I forget what Jesus has done for me. So I have to continue to believe in that, to trust in that, to rely upon that, to rest in that, and repent. It's both believing and repenting. Repenting that I'm not trusting in Christ, but ultimately trusting in myself or other perhaps idols uh, that I don't like to admit, but I'm trusting in everything else but Jesus. So that's kind of the fundamental, I think, paradigm we want to start with. And then we can talk about how interestingly the confessions and the catechism of our faith talk about sanctification not as an act of God's grace, but a work of God's grace. Interestingly, it's God's grace in both ways, but then talking about act and work. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Distinguish for us then, what's the difference between act and work? And what difference does that make as we think about sanctification and the fruit of the Spirit? When our confession, in its summary of the scriptures, talks about justification, it talks about this one-time act, this, I would call this kind of declarative statement, pronouncement, to use judge language, this kind of forensic declaration from a judge, a holy judge that says, you are righteous, you are innocent. That doesn't mean we're sinless, yet at the same time, in this kind of legal uh, context, God is declaring us righteous once for all not because of anything we've done, but ultimately because of what Christ has done for us in paying our penalty, but also uh, perfectly obeying the law in our place. And then when we put our trust in him, his righteousness, praise be to God, becomes ours. Uh, It's nothing that we've done except this wonderful yet simple yet poignant act of believing in Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. And so we're saved. We're righteous. We're declared righteous through the instrumentality of faith, through the work of Christ imputed to us, and that's done. But sanctification, I think rightly in our confession, state that it's a work. It's this ongoing work of making us ultimately who we already are. We already are united to Christ. And so it's this weird, how should, it's, it's this weird already not yet tension that I think the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, and all the New Testament writers really are talking about here. On the one hand, we're already righteous in Christ, and yet we're not yet there fully. And so in ourselves, in ourselves, personally, intrinsically, inherently, uh, we're in the process of becoming, by God's grace, intrinsically, inherently, personally righteous, even though legally, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, we are legally righteous before God. And he has the right to say that about us, he being God, and the righteousness which has been credited to us is a fully righteous righteousness, right? There's nothing lacking. It's perfect. And now that's being worked out in us. So with that in mind, when Paul says in Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does that say about our part in this work that you were describing? I think the Apostle Paul is articulating this somewhat mysterious, not easy to understand nature of sanctification, that on the one hand, it's a definitive, once-for-all position that we have in Christ, that we are holy, we are righteous, because we're united to Christ, who is holy and righteous. And yet, every time I wake up in the morning and I sin against my daughter or my wife, I become eminently aware that I'm not perfectly holy yet. And so there's that difference between the position that we have in Christ being holy definitive sanctification versus this practice of holiness that we need to now engage in as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says in Philippians, for example. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling in this life because that's the natural way in which those who are bound together, those who abide in Christ will naturally do that. Does that mean we're perfect in this life? Of course not. And so it's this weird definitive versus progressive sanctification, what I call kind of the position of sanctification versus the practice of sanctification that we need to, I think, keep in mind. 
But it seems to me Paul is arguing here when he says that uh, those who belong to Christ have been crucified with the sinful nature. He's talking about more the definitive nature of our sanctification as opposed to the progressive nature of our sanctification. Paul later on, in what as I mentioned before in Philippians, will talk about the progressive nature of working out our salvation, being renewed day by day into the image of Christ. And so it's a both and, not an either or. In 25, verse 25, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So there you see the maybe those aspects. We've been made alive once for all by the Spirit, and we've been united to Christ. And then he says, if that's true of us, let us walk by the Spirit. Well, Pastor, I, I'd like to do that, and I would very much like to see this fruit that we've been reading about, and I'd like to see that in my life, but I'm discouraged because I just, frankly, I'm not seeing this the way I would like to see it. And I, I don't know, sometimes I think, you know, maybe it's just never going to happen and, you know, maybe I should just quit. So encourage me a little bit. Absolutely. First, I would try to remind the discouraged Christian who's not seeing the kind of holy results or the fruit that he would like to see in his life. And I would first remind him of where does that fruit even come from? Where, where, what is the source of the fruit? Clearly, we have to remember that the source of the fruit of righteousness is Jesus in us through the Spirit. And that particular promise will come true. The promise that God has given to us through the Spirit is something that will never, ever leave, nor be broken, or fall away, or fade. It's kind of like when Moses received the Spirit on Sinai, his face shone, but it faded over time. And now fast forward in redemptive history, because of Jesus, the one greater than Moses is here, that glory will never fade will never leave us. And that's not a different Holy Spirit. It's the same Spirit that we see in the Old Testament, but it's that Spirit come in even more fullness because of Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection. For those now who are united to Jesus, the Spirit comes, and we have that now. We have this glorious treasure in these earthen jars of clay, and that light will never fade. And so that's the first thing I would do is remember what you have through the Spirit of Christ, that it will never fade, and it will ultimately bear the fruit you want as you continue to trust and obey. So practically, let me finish with this, and practically, what does that look like? Again, as I mentioned before, you have to abide in Christ. And has God given us instructions in His Word on how to abide in Christ better? Absolutely, he has. He's given us a lot of instruction, but he's given certain priority instructions, or he's given certain primacy to certain things of receiving his grace, growing in his grace. And again, growing in his grace requires growing in his word. And the best way to grow in his word is by hearing the word of God preached faithfully and then believing in that word. Because God says, when I preach the gospel through my messengers, through my ministers, it's me preaching the gospel to you. And if you believe it, if you receive it by faith, I'm going to grace you. I'm going to give you all the strength, the power, the love, the joy, the fruit, and all that you need. I promise to give you that. And then, of course, another means of grace is the sacraments and then prayer. But even daily devotions in the Word, trying to live according to the Word of God, will never grow unless we're fed. We can't grow in the Spirit unless we're fed by the Spirit. Has the Spirit spoken to us? Absolutely. It's the Word of God. Then why don't we feed on the Word of God more? not only in church on Sundays, but daily in our lives. Prayer is another primary means by which God uses to grow us. If we're not communicating with God, hearing him, talking with him, how do we expect to grow? 
Much like we can't grow in our relationship to our children and our wives unless we talk and communicate and listen in that relationship. Similarly, if we're not praying and communicating with the Lord, we're not going to grow. So I think there are some of my exhortations to those who might be struggling with their sanctification to keep holding to the promises of Christ and His Spirit in us. And then work out your salvation with fear and trembling in the way He has prescribed for us in His Scripture. And it's not going to be easy all the time, but you will bear much fruit that will bring glory to God and for your neighbors, for your family for your loved ones. And that's ultimately the goal. So that's what I would say. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.